So this morning we continue our uh, summer series on the book of Acts, and uh, in the previous chapters, we read one of the chapters, uh, chapter 7 and 8, um, Stephen was stoned to death, and persecution was increasing, and all this resulted then, despite of the persecution, it resulted in the growth spurt of the Christian church. The church became no longer confined to just Jerusalem, but then it became, it started to spread out according to Acts 1, according to the promise in Acts 1, where it's going to go to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this morning, we continue reading with Acts 9, and we're introduced to what Lisa brought up through the children's message, we're introduced to Saul. Saul was known by his Greek name also as Paul, and we're first introduced to Saul within the context of the murder of Stephen in chapter 7. And it was in Acts 8 verse 1 where we're told that Saul approved of Stephen's killing. So Stephen was a preacher that preached that the old must go and the new must remain. Saul himself would have been someone who would have taught and preached that the old must stay. And we got to get rid of that new. And he was referring to the Christian church and Jesus' resurrection. In 8 verse 3, chapter 8 verse 3, Saul began to destroy the church and he went to houses and dragged men and women out and put them in prison. And so now we get to Acts chapter 9 verse 1 and our reading this morning is uh, chapter 9 verses 1 to 31 and you can follow along on your apps or in your pew Bibles. Acts 9, 1 to 31. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood stood there speechless, and they heard the sound but didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but then when he opened his eyes, he couldn't see anything, so they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days he was blind and didn't eat or drink anything. So in Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to to their kings and to the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placed his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. 
And all those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan, and day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and, f- and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. And when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, and the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. And when the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, as we've read this story, it just sounds like a crazy story. A crazy story of your faithfulness and your power. A story of how humanity can try to prevent your will and your gospel from spreading, and yet you are in control. And you will even use the murderers and persecutors for your glory. You will even use their strength and passions for your good and for your kingdom. Thank you for this reading and bless this reading and the preaching of your word. Open our hearts and our minds and our eyes to what you are speaking to us through Acts 9. In Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen. I think I've shared this story over the pulpit before, and if not, probably many of you have heard this story, but I want to share it again. That uh, this, It's a story of John Newton. Newton, John Newton was an Anglican pastor in the 18th century, and he authored several songs, particularly song Amazing Grace. We'll be singing that song following uh, the service, Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone. But John's, Newton's life began in 1725 in England, and he was raised a Christian very early in life by his mother. Newton knew the catechism, and uh, he, he knew the hymns. He loved the Lord. But tragedy struck his family, and his mother passed away with tuberculosis when John was seven. And his father was a captain, and by the age of 11, John was on the boats with his father. And as John became older, he enlisted into the British Navy. And then he eventually left just Christianity behind him, and he went forward into this path of destruction. He then became captain of his own slave ship, and he then brought slaves from Africa into various parts of England and Britain. John was often drunk. He fell deeper and deeper into sin. And as worthless as John felt, this was the life that he knew. This is the life that he lived. But it was in 1748, only at the age of 23, where John's boat ran into, the, into a storm and it almost put his ship and the crew at the bottom of the sea. And the biblical stories that John once knew as a child started coming back to him, and he actually thought himself as Jonah and that he felt that he was the cause of this terrible storm. And this near-death experience led John to think about the true meaning of life. And the Holy Spirit used this storm to open Newton's eyes and to lead this man, young man, from a life of filth 
to a life of following Christ and eventually into full-time ministry. So as a minister, John looked back at his life and he cried out that amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. This story of Newton shows us God's sovereignty, God's power, God's amazing grace and love for his people and for his world. That nothing and nobody is going to get in the way of the Lord's work. And God will open the eyes of his people. He will transform hearts. And he will use sinful, broken people for his purposes, for his kingdom, for his glory. So that brings us to Acts 9, where God uses another sinner. This killer and persecutor of Jesus' followers named Saul, he was serious about his religion. Saul was a deeply devoted Jew. Prayer and meditation would have likely been part of a daily reality for Saul, and he would have studied the scriptures. He was devoted to God and to God's law. In fact, Saul was so devoted that he was willing to travel from Jerusalem up towards Damascus, which is about 200 kilometers away. And he was willing to travel that distance to ensure that people from the way, the followers of Jesus, that they were not going to get in the way what he thought was to be blaspheme to God and to the law. So Saul enters this story as a Pharisee and a strict observer of the law. He was bound and determined to keep the tradition of Judaism. So when the story of this risen Savior, Jesus Christ, was going around by this group, Saul was going to do his utmost to rid this group of any change to the Jewish Jewish traditions of the law. Saul was determined to keep the status quo and make sure that the church, what he knew as his church, was not going to change. Saul was a strong advocate of religion and yet a persecutor of those having a relationship with Jesus. So Saul was on his way to Damascus from Jerusalem to what he thought was probably for the glory of God. And to him, the glory of God was being disrespected and dishonored by these crazy Christ followers. But Saul was being disobedient. He was dead wrong in his faith. And so God made his presence known to Saul on his journey. And God opened his eyes to the truth of the gospel message. God knew that if he got this Saul guy on his side, Saul would be devoted and passionate to do anything for what he thought was the right thing. God is going to get his work done one way or another. But Saul was a terrorist and a murderer. And yet the Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, transforms Saul's life. And Saul becomes the lead character in the rest of the book of Acts. Saul wrote to many churches. He took the lead in bringing the gospel message according to Acts 1 verse 8 to the ends of the earth. And what is ironic here is that the persecutor himself eventually becomes the persecuted. As Jesus said to Ananias that Saul will suffer for my name. Verse 15. But even after Saul's conversion through Christ, Saul still had many people scared. In verse nine, or chapter 9, verse 1, we read, prior to his conversion, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. So followers of Jesus, of course, would have him labeled. He's a persecutor. 
He's a terrorist. He's a murderer. He's a killer. He's Saul. That's just the way he is. How could someone like that even change? But through the power of the Holy Spirit of Jesus, people will be changed by God and for God. You see, by birth, Saul was a Jew. By citizenship, he was Roman. By education, he was Greek. And by grace, he was a Christian, a son of God. Saul was identified as many things, but by the saving power and saving grace of Jesus and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, he was a child of God. Then the scene in these verses in this chapter changes and it moves towards Ananias. And we probably ask, well, who's this Ananias guy? We don't know a lot about him. Scripture doesn't tell us a lot about him. Scripture doesn't share his conversion story with us. Ananias was a follower of Jesus before Saul was. We don't hear much about Ananias except that he was instructed through a vision from the Lord to make this visit to Saul. So Ananias had a vision from the Lord. And as our reading went on, uh, he seemed to be rather obedient, answering, Yes, Lord. It almost seems that this conversation from God was not something out of the ordinary for him. But what was out of the ordinary for him was God's request. Basically, it would appear that God is sending Ananias on a suicide mission. A biblical scholar once said asking Ananias to make this visit would be like asking a Jewish rabbi to make a pastoral visit to Hitler. It's entering a lion's den or a snake's pit. Ananias, when the Lord called out his name, answers, yes, Lord. But there was hesitancy once the request was made. Ananias explains to God that this Saul guy is in Damascus for a reason, and he's, willing, he's ready to take people to prison in Jerusalem, as if God doesn't know that already. So Ananias would rather be disobedient than put his life in danger. As the story continues... God explained that Saul was now his chosen instrument. Okay, Ananias was probably still anxious, but he obeyed. And God opened Ananias' eyes to the fact that people can be changed for God's purpose. Both Ananias and Saul were God's chosen instruments. God transformed Saul from a killer to a preacher. God transformed Ananias from a fearful follower to a willing participant in God's mission. And Ananias arrives at Saul's place and he places his hands on Saul and he prays for Saul. And Saul's eyes are opened just like Ananias' eyes were opened. God didn't need Ananias to open Saul's eyes. But this was part of God's plan. Ananias was included in the plan and he was called to be obedient that's it. People of God, perhaps some of us are here today and maybe we're like the John Newtons of today or maybe like the Sauls of today or the Ananiases. Maybe some are leading a life of sin or a life of fear and that not only impacts you, 
but also has a great impact on others and even future generations. Because what we do today will have consequences, either positive or negative, for tomorrow. As we talked in our time of confession, we brought up some of the sins that many people struggle with. Perhaps people are struggling with addictions or promiscuity, financial recklessness, lack of forgiveness. Maybe we're struggling with making disciples of all nations or even just next door. And we're not being faithful to God's command and His prompting in our lives. So the question comes before us as well. Where does God need to open our eyes to the injustices and to the wrongs and disobedience in our lives so that we too can see the amazing grace of Jesus in our lives and in others? One of my former congregations, I guess that would be Kingston. (laughs) I only have one. Um, We were working through various behavioral and spiritual issues in our church community. And we, went, we walked through a journey with Resonate Global Missions, which was home missions at that time, and a lot of their resource material about setting the church free from certain behaviors and negative habits. And through this journey, we put in place what was called a prayer action plan. So we put this plan based on prayer forward, praying that we would renounce the certain behaviors that may appear pleasing to us, but we would renounce them and announce a new holy behavior, pleasing to God. Now, without getting into too much about this, the reason for this strategy was that often around many of the conversations, we would hear the phrase, well, that's just the way I am. Oh, I'm stubborn. I don't need to change. It's just the way I am. Oh, I have a temper. I've always been that way. It's just the way I am. Oh, that person wronged me, and and I'm hurt. But that's just the way I am. I'm not able to offer much to the church because it's my hard-earned money. That's just the way I am. I have a bit of an addiction. That's just the way I am. I'm nervous and shy about sharing the gospel. Just the way I am. This phrase was often quoted and probably... Many of us in many churches are familiar with that phrase. It's just the way I am. And when it's quoted, it's insinuating that we cannot change who we are. And this phrase then becomes a reasonable and justifiable excuse. That's just the way I am. There's nothing I can do about it, and God's not doing anything about it. In fact, he made me this way. In fact, over time, this excuse did not only become a personal excuse... But then we began to use it as an excuse for one another. Ah, we should just let that person be. That's just the way they are. But God doesn't accept that for his people and for his church. When we are hurting ourselves or hurting God's people, we are hurting Jesus. As Jesus says to Saul, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Verse 5. So today's story from Acts 9 shows hope. Shows us hope that nobody needs to be just the way they are 
Because God will change his people for his purposes. God is in the ministry of transforming his people. He is in the ministry of growing people and using people for building his kingdom and making more disciples. Some of the transformation will be extreme, like what happened to Saul or even to John Newton. Other transformation maybe not as extreme, like Ananias. But there is always transformation happening. This passage from Scripture in Acts 9 again shows that no matter what kind of person we are or have been, Jesus can transform us from who we are into who he wants us to become. So are you going to let him? Or are you going to resist him? Later on, Saul or Paul, he writes to the church in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 19, we read, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. And all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. People, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And when we are found, he will open our eyes to his amazing grace and his love. Saul was lost. He was found. His eyes were opened. And Saul began preaching that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. Verse 21, it states that people were astonished and many were skeptical that and thought that this is his way probably just to try to catch people and and trick them and imprison them. Earlier he had been killing fellow Jews, and now he's preaching about Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior? It would be hard to believe, because we would say, well, that's just the way he is. But no. God transformed him. (laughs) The Jews wanted to kill him. Other followers supported Saul and hid him from the Jews. The disciples in verse 26 were afraid and didn't believe that such a transformation was possible. In verse 27, then Barnabas, the encourager, he took Saul to the disciples. And it was again like bringing the enemy's weapon of mass destruction into ally territory. God transforms hearts and minds into the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. But let's not only look at other people, right? Because it's easy to see someone who needs transformation. And maybe some of you are thinking, man, I wish so-and-so were here today to listen to this. But the story's for me. It's for us. Because God will open our eyes. He wants us. He wants to use us for his glory. He wants to use us for his purposes, for his kingdom work here on this earth today. We belong to the rescuer. The rescuer who saves the world, who saves us, who's come to seek and to save the lost. We belong in life and death, body and soul, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, open our eyes to see your amazing grace. And that gives us comfort, peace, and assurance. And on account of what Jesus has done for us, we also need to reflect on what offenses And injustices do we need to open our eyes to? How is God calling us now to respond in every daily activity? How do we behave in situations at work? How do we behave in our families? How do we behave when we come to worship on Sundays? How do we behave when we leave worship on Sundays? 
When we enter into worship, into our regular routines throughout the week, how do we behave? What practices of the old self are so hard to rid of? What areas of life have you been tempted to say, well, I've always been that way? But what practices of the old self is God calling each of us to work on? Or more importantly, God allowing God to work on us? If you are living a life like Saul, maybe quite religious, but a life without Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, allow the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, to transform your mind and your heart. Allow Jesus to open your eyes to his amazing grace. Repent and do that 180 turn and surrender your life to Jesus. Accept your identity in Christ and find out that you can be a different person through Christ. If you're like Ananias, a follower of Jesus already, having a deep relationship with Jesus, what sort of things are holding you back from following God's will? Like that fear, that anxiety that Ananias had. What things are you afraid of? Where are you holding back on things in life where God is sending you? Surrender your life to Jesus and ask him to remove the things that are preventing you from being fully alive and free in Christ. I close off with the words also from Paul's letter, this time to the Colossians. Colossians 3, 12-14. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And together we say, Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, you have your purposes for each of us, for each of us sinners. And yet you continue to reach out to us with your mercy and your amazing grace. So remove what needs to be removed in our lives. Open our eyes to see the things that we have, put, have to put behind us and to see th- new things that you present before us, a new life in Christ. We thank you for all your rich blessings. We thank you for your church. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for forgiveness of all our sins and we thank you for your amazing grace. And because of all that and what you have done for us, may we respond in obedience and proclaim your name and your gospel to a broken and hurting world. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.